The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into Stephen King's epic The Dark Tower. This podcast is dedicated to discussion and analysis of The Dark Tower, a seven-book series written by the prolific American story-slinger Stephen King. Say thank you, Cy. Roland of Gilead unfolded his hands and got slowly to his feet. He stood on what appeared to be nothing, legs apart, his right hand on his hip, and his left hand on the sandalwood grip of his revolver. He stood as he had stood so many times before, in the dusty streets of a hundred forgotten towns, in a score of rock-lined canyon-killing zones, in unnumbered dark saloons with their smells of bitter beer and old fried meals. It was just another showdown in another empty street. That was all. And that was enough. It was Kef, Ka, and Katet. That the showdown always came to the central fact of his life and the axle upon which his own car revolved. That the battle would be fought with words instead of bullets this time made no difference. It would be a battle to the death, just the same. The stench of killing in the air was as clear and definite as the stench of exploded carrion in a swamp. Then the battle rage descended as it always did and he was no longer really there to himself at all. All right, welcome back to the Wheel of Ka, here to talk some more Dark Tower, book three, Wastelands. This is Derek and Steve coming back at you, my friends. Steve, how you feeling, brother? Great, great. I'm ready to jump into this. Yeah, so... It's been a little while. It has been a little while. But... We have, we have finished book three of The Wastelands. We did our last episode was on the first half of The Wastelands. So just to recap, The Wastelands is delineated into two books, book one and book two. And we discussed book one of The Wastelands last month. We're here to talk book two of The Wastelands. We're here to go to Lud. We are really ready, really excited. A lot of great things to talk about. I think I'd like to kick this conversation off very similar to the last one. We've now finished book three of The Wastelands. How do you feel about it, Steve? Pretty good. Pretty good. Better than the first time. Uh, I picked up a lot more the second read through. The first time it's like, whoa, there's so much happening. You know, we go from killing a bear and then now all of a sudden we're in a brand new city. And now we're on a train, a psychotic train, which is crazy. I'm sure we'll dive into it, but I feel pretty good about it. I mean, it definitely feels a little bit more like uh, an established Stephen King, more of a movie writer. I think it. I think it definitely feels a little bit more like an action movie. The second half of this book, uh, it, I, and I really do feel like the first two halves are are different. And then you know, you enlightened me a little bit when we talked about that middle piece, you know, in the river crossing that we'll get to. But I, I enjoyed it. I did. I enjoyed it overall. I had a lot of fun. It was crazy. It was, it was a lot to get through. It's a much bigger book the second time around. You know, it felt like a much bigger book. Oh, yeah. And the second half of this book is no doubt action-packed. You called it almost like an action movie. From the moment the characters cross the bridge or try to cross the bridge and get into Lud, it is nonstop action to the end of the book. It's the only book that ends... Um, that I can remember, maybe, that ends on a major cliffhanger. Sure. That it doesn't fully conclude the narrative. All of the characters are still in mortal peril at the end of it. And uh, you're right, it does have a little more of an action movie kind of feel to it. Well, and it definitely 
with that cliffhanger, it makes you want the next book. Yep. And I do think there's less time in between book three and four. I think, I think King was on a roll with this one and, you know, made people wait a little bit. You know, he had other things to write, but it does feel a little bit more like an action movie. Yeah, sure. to- totally. I, so to me, and not I, in a bad way. Yeah, I was not I was in a bad way. Say, I mean, I think is there a letdown there for no, you with that? No, 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 not necessarily. I mean, we have like quintessential Roland in this, you know, and and where I had some difficulty, truthfully, is that I didn't think that the characters grew as much as they did in the first half of the book. Uh, I thought in the second half it we really paused on character development and, and, and more on action and narrative, which, which is fine. But I, I am a person that gets really stuck in character development. And so when that goes away to placate for other things in the story, it just, I, I, it, it makes me a little nuts sometimes, but it's, that's but, fair. But that's no, very fair to, to answer your question. However, to get away from my diatribe, um, no, it's not a bad thing. It's just different. Yeah. I feel very much that the character development that we see in the first half has prepared these characters for the trials of the second half. So the first half is to build up who these characters are, to get them in the position they need to be now that these characters are who they are in this book. And what I mean specifically, we have Roland who cares about his cotet. He cares about these other people. He doesn't want to view them just as pieces on the chessboard. I'll pull out a quote about that later. He wants to see them as full gunslingers and humans. And Jake, he absolutely adores and loves. And we finally get Oi, and Oi, who is also part of the cotet. This is also, I think, instrumental in learning really what it means for a world to move on. And we get two stark contrasting visions of that between the river crossing and Lud of what it means to have a world moved on. And, uh, and then I'd say that Eddie and Susanna are full-fledged gunslingers. Absolutely. And Eddie is on his way. One of the, just a little piece of evidence, when Roland and Eddie and Susanna have to split ways, where he says, you guys go find the cradle, I'll get Jake. And Eddie and Susanna say, and the plan is, hey, when you find the cradle, shoot a gun into the air. That's how I'll know you found it. Right. And Eddie says, that would likely draw some other people of the city. What do you expect me to do? Roland's response is, handle them. Handle it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. They are now gunslingers that he fully trusts that whatever is thrown at them at Lud, they can handle it. And I think the first half got them to that point so that it could overcome the trials of the second half. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's great perspective. From my point of view, absolutely. So thank you. And I do think, I mean, but, but, you know, Eddie also grows because he doesn't question Roland's response. He, okay, yeah, we'll take care of it. Sure. Susanna never questions it because she's a straight badass. Yeah, she's a gunslinger. She knows. Yeah, she knows it. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I don't think it's a bad thing. I yeah, think it's and, a good thing. And you're right. Less character development in the more nuanced and, like, The first book is very deep, in particular, into the psychology of Roland, Eddie, and Jake. It's very much written from their point of view. We are seeing their struggles. Eddie is battling the ghost of his brother. Jake is battling um, his absolute grip of his sanity with two dueling versions of reality, and Roland is coping with that as well. So you get really deep into that. 
and it culminates when they have to draw you know Jake into the world that rectifies that. To me, now it's point. Now that this has happened, it's just like let's see how badass these questing knights are, mm. and we get the answer. Very fucking badass. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. And I, I do think that, you know, they do go through those trials the first half of the book so that they can use the things that they learned to take, to take playing down. I mean, it's that storyline's crazy. There's, there, there's, there's no question about it. So we should probably start at the river crossing. Oh, hold on. Let's back up before we do that. Yes. Two Cl- other big questions Classic I want to ask. Steve. Yeah. Yeah. No, because I, I would love to start the river crossings. Let's analyze each character, what they went through. But I have two big fundamental questions for you. Sure. One that we have asked every one of these uh, of Wheel of Ka episodes. What do you think the Dark Tower is? And what do you think the Dark Tower represents in the second half of the book? Has it changed from the physical place, from the Holy Grail, as we described it in the last one? Or do you think it takes on a new meaning in this? And what would that meaning be? Yes. Just so everyone knows, I'm sitting here cracking up in my seat because I told Derek earlier today, I was like, we have to make sure that we ask this question. And here I want to jump ahead. (laughs) So the tower, um, I don't think it changes much in the second half of the book. I do think it becomes a destination point. I don't think it it represents death at this point in time. I I think Blaine very much represents death in this part of the book. Um, But I think it's a destination. I mean, Roland still brings it up. There's a piece in when they're on Blaine, you know, riding on that train where he he cannot stop thinking and talking about the tower. So I do still think it's a destination point for them. But I don't think it plays as much of a role as it did in the first half or in previous books. Yep, totally. Because I think... The previous books, it's all about the quest for the tower. And right now, the second half of the book, it is the quest to find Blaine. Yeah. That is what their their object is. And Jake comes through and says, we need to find Blaine. No one really knows why. No one really knows how. But Blaine is the quest. So the tower takes a little bit of a symbolic backseat where Blaine does come to represent death. We get some awful and gross foreshadowing in the way they read the children's book and the way that Stephen King makes that children's book so terrifying and that like the kids look like they're laughing, but everyone really knows they're screaming. So we get this dark foreshadowing of Blaine. So the quest, I think, in this one is Blaine on the step to the tower. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it changes much. I'd like to point out one, one thing that I thought was significant in trying to understand the tower in its more concreteness, in its more, it's the holy grail that will right the wrong of the land. When they leave the river crossing, Jake is talking to Eddie, and Jake doesn't think it's right that they have left. And Jake is like, or Eddie, pardon me, is trying to explain to him, listen, it'll never get easier to leave. If we end up staying to help them, we're pretty much going to be there helping them until the day we die, and we have a quest to go on. And then Roland overhears that, and he says, right, is that what this is all about? Roland said, but if you look too long at the small things, Jake, it's easy to lose sight of the big ones that stand further off. Things are out of joint, going wrong, and getting worse. We see it all around us. But the 20 or 30 people left in river crossings, or the 30,000 more who might be suffering or dying elsewhere... And if there's any place in the universe where these things can be set right, it's the Dark Tower. And Roland is kind of trying to teach Jake that, 
yeah, we may want to help these people in the short run. And yes, we have the power. However, there is an overriding, bigger, grander thing to do, which is to get to the tower to stop this world from moving on. So he's trying to move Jake into knighthood, essentially. Absolutely. And also to look at the more consequentialist big picture. Hey, we can help a lot more people if we get to the tower. These 20 or 30 people may die. Well, the one thing that Jake is that Roland is not is an empath. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Jake is, uh, and I think this is what Jake and Eddie share pretty closely as well, is that his ability to feel other people's emotions and his, his, his ability to be intuitive is unlike, I mean, that's his gift. They talk later about the touch, you know, and we'll, we'll, I'm not going to jump ahead, but he does have this certain ability to be able to look inside someone's soul to feel what they're feeling and pull from that. And ultimately, I mean, you see that even as we move forward with Blaine. You know, he's making comments under his breath. He's, he's, he's picking up on the, on the energy in the room. And that's something that he does not share with Roland. And so I think Roland trying to, trying to bring that piece and move it a little bit more towards the killer instinct, which Jake also has. Absolutely. We're trying to hone that a little bit. Well, it's important to note in that same passage, Jake asks Roland, hey, how will the Dark Tower do this? And Roland's answer is, quote, I can't answer these questions. I wish I could. And so there's still an air of mystery. Can the Dark Tower actually heal a world moving on? It's very clear that Roland's morality, if you want to learn more about this, I wrote a whole blog about it on the website, www.midnightmyth.com. By the way, hit us up on Twitter, at the Midnight Myth. Um, We're also on Facebook, Midnight Myth Podcast, on Instagram. And if you're loving the show, please give us a rating or review. And seriously, guys, if there's one thing you can do if you like us, give us that rating because that really helps us get out there. And while you're doing that, stop off at www.midnightmyth.com and get one of these sweet-ass Wheel of Ka t-shirts I happen to be wearing right now. Yes. That is for Laurel, for all of you Midnight Myth (laughs) listeners. She would be upset if I didn't do these plugs. So that is for all of you. By the way, listeners, listeners, we love you and thank you. But back to the, uh, the, the, the meat and potatoes here. I think we are seeing... Roland trying to break into that empathic quality of Jake. I think you nailed it. Jake is able to sense and feel what others are thinking and feeling on a very intuitive level. And he is also a very moral child. So he feels obligated to help them. And Roland is letting them know their quest is not to help them. It's to help everyone. Right. All right. So yeah. Any last thoughts on what we think the tower is? No, I think we covered it. I'd like to dig into another big symbolic subject of the second half of the book that we haven't talked about in detail yet. I would like to talk about Ka. Sure. I mean, in fairness, it doesn't get mentioned very much up until this point. This second half of the book is where... it's it's big. Where Ka Ka is discussed. The characters are um, trying to understand it. Roland is trying to teach it. We get the sense, so Roland explains that Ka has linked them to a thing called a Ka-tet, mm-hmm. which is uh, out of one come many, which that they are linked in Ka. They have the ability to have like light levels of telepathic communication mm-hmm. where they can communicate to each other. Oi is part of it. It's one of the reasons that they can communicate with Oi. So qu- big question for you, Steve, what's Ka? 
Well, so for a long time, I looked at it as destiny. That, that is what Ka was. It was destiny. And I looked at it from, from a lot... Of, I mean, basically, the way that it's talked about in the book, it's, it's this un... Excuse me, inevitable thing that happens that we have absolutely no control over ourselves. And actually, it was you who had brought to my attention that the word Ka in relation to ancient Egypt which is really interesting. I looked up that definition today, Correct. and if I, if I may read it, if please, you don't mind. Yeah, please do. So in, in ancient Egypt, it was the supposed spiritual part of an individual human being or God which survived with soul after death and could reside in a statue of the person. So this is really interesting because in this second half of the book, there are statues of fucking gunslingers everywhere that completely resemble Roland. They're in River Crossing. They're in Lud. There's literally a fucking ice statue of him on Blaine with missing fingers and everything. And that hit me today. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. I was like, oh my God, there, that's everywhere in this book. There are just signs and pieces of the gunslinger. And then it reminded me about something that we talked about way back when, before we even started the cast, in that I believe that the entire book series is about Roland finding his soul. So if Ka is that you continue after death to relive this with your soul intact, basically, uh, until you find your purpose, I mean, you can live in statues and shit, like your soul just hangs around. And to me, it moved from destiny, I, I mean, it, it evolved. I shouldn't say moved because it evolved from being pure, purely destiny to this idea of this story to me really is about this man's soul, finding and accepting Roland's soul. I love that. <clears throat> I, I agree with everything. A few just big points I'd like to say, because it's very rare where ancient Egypt thought or belief or patterns bubbles up into popular storytelling. And when it does, I get pretty giddy because one of my entry points into loving history, and if you listen to our regular podcast, you know I'm the history buff, has always been a fascination with ancient Egypt. The ancient Egyptians, because their lives were so dependent on the regular flooding of the Nile, and they were in the Sahara Desert when the Nile flooded and then receded, it would deposit minerals into the soil, which allowed them to then uh, have food because they would farm it. And because of these regular cycles, the Egyptian cosmology, the ancient Egyptian cosmology is one of cycles, a cycle of life, death, and rebirth. And Ka is an aspect of these cycles where that the, the very essence of a person can sustain itself after death into this permanent cycle of life, death, and rebirth. To the ancient Egyptians, you can take the material with you to the spiritual, there's no separation between the real life of the living and the life of the dead, the way that we modern people think of it. These actually interact simultaneously. And as long as you do the proper rituals, your ka will make it to the next level. And the reason why statues are important is because you need a place to host it so that that statue can literally come to life with your ka and walk into the the afterlife and be judged by Osiris, the ancient Egyptian god of mummification and the dead. I think it's no secret and no, um, pardon me, um, you know, just mere circumstance 
that ka, the sort of essence that glues these characters together in a spiritual, telepathic, and material sense, is named after an ancient Egyptian sort of analog for the human soul. So I have a question. Go for it. What does Ka mean for the rest of the party? Because this is not Roland's first katet. What does it mean for the rest of the party? And with, with two other kind of side questions. Okay. So, so what does it mean for the rest of the party? How long do you think this group of people has been a part of Roland's story? And, and is, is Ka really just focused on Roland? All really big questions. I want to try to limit my answers because I know where the story's going. Right. So I want to try to cut off where I know it's going and focus just on Up this Up until book. this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And think of everything that's happened to all, to all four of them up until this point. Right. So one part of it is functional. And I mean functional in the respect that King is world building. And Ka is the glue that links all of these characters together. And because the characters don't know about Ka, they can ask Roland about Ka and he can teach them. So it's a really efficient way to both enhance the characters, enhance the mythology of the world, and give exposition to how this world works. It's how we know that um, Jake could hear Roland in the haunted house when he dropped the key, for example. You know, Roland says it's because of Ka. It's how they can communicate so, cl so quickly and clearly. It's how Oi can understand them so expertly. So all of these little things can be explained by Ka and through Ka. So I think that's one level of it. The other level of it, if this is a universe in which, well, universe, pardon me, multiverse, in which all of reality is being undone because of the events at the tower, and that we have questing knights on the, the path to go and fight for the tower and to save the multiverse, I think adding Ka to it also adds a level of cosmic significance that we don't have without it. Why these characters? What makes these characters so connected? Why is it, you asked the question, yeah, Why yeah, did yeah. Eddie and Susanna fall in love so easily? Because of Ka, mm. right? Why is it that Jake and Roland uh, have such a bond? It's because of Ka. Why is it that, you know, almost immediately, Jake and Susanna kind of surrogately adopt Jake into their family? It's because of Ka. How come Oi just loves Jake and will be able to do anything to fight for Jake mm -hmm. and becomes instrumental in Jake's survival in this book? It's because of Ka. And I agree with you up until this point, for sure. Absolutely. I, th I would like to add this to the, to the questions. So I, th I think moving forward, we should talk about, you know, what does the Dark Tower mean? And, and also, what does Ka mean? Because it's another thing that's ever-changing. Sure. Especially from, from the point of view of each character, but definitely in Roland's case. Yeah. Can I point out one last thing, too? Absolutely. About Ka? This is the first time we hear the phrase, Ka is a wheel. Uh -huh. And remember when I said that ancient Egyptian cosmology is cyclical. Right. It's about cycles. And the idea is that at Ka, you will always end up where you began and that you are on the wheel of Ka. And I think that is significant into what it means to these characters because it means it would always be them. It always has to be them. And if this were to ever repeat, it will be them again mm -hmm. because Ka is a wheel. And there is a 
ancient Indic philosophy that is very similar to this. It's called the samsara. I may have talked about it before, I don't remember. But the samsara is the cycle of life and death as expressed through ancient Indic or ancient uh, Hindu philosophy. And the purpose of studying things like yoga, not in the, I go to the yoga studio so I can have a nice flexible type body, but to study the religious aspects of yoga, yoga is to break you out of the cycle of the samsara. So I think we are also playing with both the ancient Egyptian, the ancient Indic. Yeah, sure. And, and you know, Roland gaining his soul is really just another way to look at enlightenment too. I mean, if it's, if, if we're talking about the enlightenment of practicing the religion of yoga, you know, to get yourself outside of the wheel, then I think to break the wheel of Ka, Roland has to gain that piece of his soul. Absolutely. Um, great. So we've discussed the dark tower, our first reactions. We've discussed Ka. Shall we get a little more granular into the text? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. You let. I think we should begin with river crossing. Definitely, that's the first thing that happens. All right. Well, tell me, man, what do you think about river crossing? It's interesting. You know, at first, uh, I, I sort of forgot about it because, you know, to admit it, I I read the second half of the book in pieces because I was in two shows, so it was kind of a little crazy for me. But going back and and you know, kind of discussing it with you and going back and referencing some things, I think it's very necessary because it. It's slow. It, it doesn't slow the story down, but it definitely grounds us for a second. You know, we have this very fantastical world in the beginning where we're learning about mythology. We're starting to understand the Katet. We're starting to understand that these, you know, that Eddie and Susanna are gunslingers. We're, we're saving Jake. We're getting Jake back into the fold, which, by the way, he's not officially part of the Katet yet, as far as Roland is concerned. And Roland talks about that, and I think that's important to, to justify is that right now... Even though Ka connects both Jake and Oi to the Katet, they're not necessarily a piece of it yet. And I, and I think that's very interesting. But I do think that this piece of the book grounds us. You know, we meet Antalitha, we meet these people that Eddie has, the sages that Eddie has seeked. They're finally here, even though he may not see that. And I want you to talk more about that because I, I just stole that from you, technically. That's quite all right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a really great point. It's a fluid conversation. Right. And so, you know, we learn a little bit more about Lud. We learn more about Midworld and how the world has moved on and what that really means for people in this world and how they've survived and who has survived. I think that's one of the most interesting parts of River Crossing are the people who have survived. They are elderly. There aren't a whole lot of young people in River Crossing at all. These are the people who, who do believe in prophecy, who do believe in Ka, who do believe in the gunslingers and believe in the old ways and the old world. And it's very interesting, but they don't seem short-sighted to me. They seem very wise here in River Crossing. Um, totally agree. You know, yeah. I think it, I thought it was, you know, very apparent to me that Eddie is daydreaming that he will get to Lud and see these wise old elves who will give them what they need to aid them onto the quest and give them food and lodging, and it will be like this awesome like part of the adventure. And he's in that right now, but doesn't realize it because right. in his mind it must be the city. <laughs> right. It's right. got to be you know the New York equivalent. That's where the wise old elves would be. It would never be on this like dusty old town on the path to the city. No one wise would live there, which speaks to where I think the the real amazing contrast of two different pieces of Midworld between Lud and between River Crossing. River Crossing stands as a bastion of civilization. You, you called it the old ways. 
why does Jake want to stay and help the people of River Crossing? And it's a pretty easy answer. They are still, and this can be a loaded term, but quote unquote, civilized. They recognize that there's an institution called gunslingers, that they're there to fight for people. They offer them food. They break bread. They treat them as honored guests. And because of that, they give as much information and help that they can give them before they go on their journey. Mm -hmm. And they, they have more structure. Absolutely. They have found a way to evade being um, you know, ripped apart by bandits or greys and pubes or all of the other terrible things that exist in Midworld at this time. They found a way to keep places beautiful, to have good gardens. And because of this, we see that there is little pockets of civilization, even in a world that has moved on and a world that is ended. And at the brink of pure multiverse collapse, there's an air of positivity in that there's this place called River Crossing. And I think it has to, in King's view, not be the city. Sure. I think there's an element of saying that when you get to the city, the dog-eat-dog -dog city, that there is a little more harshness. That is where there's a little more moral corruption and right. rot. And when the world moves on, when there's no one policing the city, that's where it becomes pure anarchy, where a place like River Crossing can still maintain some of the quote-unquote old ways. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I mean, they are also hold on to religion. In River Crossing, I mean, there's a very specific moment where Aunt Aletha gives Roland a cross to lay at, at the foot of the Dark Tower. And, and they're one of the only groups of people so far that believes in the Dark Tower the way that Roland does. So we get to see, you know, a bit of, of Midworld, you know, a bit of Gilead or the remembrance of a time, you know, and place when those were the ways you know, we see that through her, and she really reveres Roland. It, it, it's actually kind of sweet to see the way that, that, that they look at Roland and how humbled he feels. It's like the first time, you know, we see Roland, like, whoa, he's, he's a, kind of a guy. It's right. really interesting. And Susanna, I think it's Susanna that has this perception that's just like part of being a gunslinger, it's not just killing people. He was a diplomat. And a, yes, and a great communicator. Exactly. Yep. He knew how to talk to people. So, which is how he connects to Jake by being an empath, because there is a piece of Roland, you know, and up until this point, we don't get to see much of it, but there is a small piece of Roland that knows how to connect emotionally with these folks. There's a time and a place, you know, for, for him for violence and for that to be the answer to the question but not all the time. And in fact, we see him as more of a diplomat, whether that be positive and reassuring and caring, or as we see later in this book, very firm and aggressive, but he, not violent, assertive, right? but not violent. It's not always about violence. I mean, when you lose your hand, you know, your main shooting hand, and you have to, you have to rely on the other things that you're good at. You know, Roland is good at, Getting to the point. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I loved the river crossing sequence. I loved seeing Roland the Diplomat, and I think it also aided more into the world-building aspect. It was a great way to have exposition that wasn't boring. Right, it dull. was a nice, it was a breath of fresh air, too, because before, it was the calm before the storm. I mean, because Ludd is fucking nuts. If there's <laughs> nothing left of the world worth saving, why fight to save it? 
Mm. And I think that's a great point. River crossing tells us there's something left to fight. The people of Midworld are not just aggressive brutes. They're not just slow mutants. They're not just angry oracle sexual predator spirits. They're not just gigantic, insane guardians who will like like sneeze like maggot filled snot at you. Like there are good people left in Midworld. And those people are worth fighting for and worth saving. And I think River Crossings communicated that to me. Definitely. There is this morbid curiosity in my head, though, in that I wonder sometimes if Roland continues on this quest because he knows that these people are probably not going to survive this. And he does it anyway more so that he can be freed from his own prison. I think... This, the way, you know, your perspective on it, it, at least in my view, is the way that Jake and Susanna and Eddie would look at the situation. But I think for Roland, even though he, we see a little bit of his empathy, we see him relate to some of these characters, at the end of the day, it it's about getting to the fucking tower. Period. End of story. And I have to remind myself about that sometimes. Yeah. That's well, a hard thing to deal with. It's funny that you say that because after they leave River Crossing, there's a great scene in which Eddie confronts Roland. And Eddie says, then stop behaving like we're a bunch of sheep and you're the shepherd walking along behind us, waving a crook to make sure we don't trot off the road and into a quicksand bog. Open your mind to us. If we're going to die in the city or on the train, I want to die knowing I was more than a marker on your game board, Eddie says to Roland. And then what does Roland say back? Gunslinger, I cry your pardon. And I think we see a very different exchange between Eddie and Roland who bump heads in the previous books, who bump heads in the first half of this book. Eddie confronts Roland and says, motherfucker, I am not your piece on a chessboard. Like I'm willing to lay down my life for this quest but you have to see me as an equal. And his response is, I see you as an equal now. You are not just a piece on this board. And I think his actions, once they get to Ludd, prove it. Absolutely. They prove, Absolutely. They prove that he cares. They prove that he's willing to, go the, what, to do whatever he needs to do to help and save them. Do you know how hard it is to not talk about future books? Especially, it's hard. especially in this one, just because of the, what happens. But anyway, yes, you're right. I mean, up until this point, you know, some of the biggest decisions that Eddie has had to make are directly involve Roland. And Eddie's come through on all of them. On the way to Ludd, let's talk a little bit about that before we get into the, the big finale of the whole book. Sure. They come across a plane. It has a... A sticker on it that's, I forget the symbol, but underneath it, it's a Nazi war plane. In it, they find the remains of a character we come to learn is David Quick, who ends up being, I think, the great-great-grandfather, if I remember correctly, or is it just great-great-grandfather? Great-grandfather of the TikTok man. Um, what do you think of this scene? It was It was strange. Strange that there was a Nazi plane in the middle of Midworld. Um... You know, at first, I, I didn't really think much about it. I, I kind of glanced over it. And then when it comes back, you know, when we learn about the TikTok man, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. 
but to be completely honest, I don't know what it means. I mean, how the fuck would it have gotten there? I, it's, it's one of those mysteries here that I think kind of encapsulates the J.J. Abrams theory of storytelling, mm. which his theory of storytelling is you have a mystery box and you want the audience to be unpacking that mystery box at all times. It's what comes gets people coming back. So I think having this Nazi plane on the way to Ludd is part mystery box. Why is it there? Who's the skeleton in it? How would a Nazi plane end up here? Didn't Nazis happen such a long time ago in our when? Did you did but did you stop to think about it at all? I mean, I thought about those questions, but I didn't think much further past those questions. Yes, but when it comes to that, the person flying the plane is related to the TikTok man. Sure. Is where I think there's some interesting symbolism and I may be reading too deep into it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and say that it might not be as deep as this, and sure. maybe I'm projecting into it. I mean, there has to be a reason for it, though. It's the, fir- it's the first time that, like, a direct, other than New York, you know, a, a direct piece of our history interacts with Midworld. Well, we are forgetting two other things. The man Jesus and uh, Hey Jude. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, sure. So there sure. are, Pieces. and then there's also the Amico in the first book. Oh, my glorious Amico that I made such a big fucking deal about. Yeah, you're right. So there is a element that the space between mid-world and our world is thin, mm-hmm. and that sometimes things can cross. How they cross and when they cross, we've seen different types of crossings for different reasons but they all involve some form of a sacrifice. Mm. Whether that is Roland sacrificing Jake to get three doors in the first book into the second book, whether that is um, Eddie sacrificing the Ashwood and Susanna sacrificing her body and Jake sacrificing his sanity and Roland sacrificing his sanity to get Jake there. I get the sense that one of the greatest sacrifices made in human history was World War II. Sure. <laughs> and that it might make sense that that would cause some sort of an opening. I think it's interesting that we're seeing a Nazi weapon of war. So I think that certainly connotates mechanization. It connotates, you know, planes flying, a technology that is beyond anyone in mid-world has seen in thousands and thousands of years so much so that technology is more worshipped as a god than understood as technology and it's another representation of urbanization leading to war and death and destruction it's this whole argument that i think is happening symbolically at the back end of this book that it's in the cities where a lot of the most fucked up shit can happen in human history that what do we cross Fucking Nazis. And that's the thing. I, that's why I don't think it's so far-fetched, and I don't think you're reading too deeply into it, because now that you remind me about... You know, it's funny how, how details can be lost. I mean, thinking about Hey Jude and thinking about, you know, the connect, the small connections. Fucking Amico. I made such a big deal about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't think about it that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought it was an interesting part, and it in the first read, I just went right by it. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's a Nazi plane there. Second read, I'm like, hmm, there's a little more to this scene. Why this? Why is this the thing that is that they cross? Oh, and there's also the beehive. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot about the beehive. 
just real quick point, they find a beehive, the bees are all mutated and disgusting, and where they have the real land of quote-unquote milk and honey, to quote the Old Testament, is back in River Crossing. The closer they get to the city, the thing that they think would be dessert turns out to be poison. Right. I think that's significant that they see these two things on the way to Lud. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I never looked at it that way. Yeah. All right, so let's let's talk Lud. Oh, so many things. A lot to say. Well, I, so we start it's the by, rest of the book. Yeah, it's the rest of the book for sure. Um, you know, I mean, we start by having to cross, uh, you know, a really not well-built bridge, basically. You know, we're going to, the whole cocktail is going to try to get from one side to the other to actually get into Lud. Uh, and then fucking Gasher shows up. This, like, mutated, what was once a human and now is is a pube. Or, no, I guess he's a gray, He's right? a gray, yeah. He's a gray. Shows up, kidnaps Jake. Uh, and basically for a handful of chapters, we have him abusing Jake and taking him through, you know, the underbelly of Lud to get to the TikTok man and basically sacrifice him. I mean, he, I mean, l- listen, I, when I read this the first time, you know, I was, I was younger than I am now. And I was like, oh man, this is cra- This is so intense. This is so crazy. And now I'm like, this is fucking abuse. I mean, he, he threatens to rape Jake and, and it just, it, 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 now it, as a person in my thirties, like, is it, a, it makes me why that this piece made me wildly uncomfortable. You know, it's I just, totally agree. I mean, he's a fucking kid, dude. He's 10 years old. He's mm-hmm. whipping him. He's, he's basically making Jake run, th- run blind through these tunnels where it's pitch black. You know, Jake's feet are getting all ripped up by glass. I mean, this guy's beating the shit out of this kid. And yet Jake somehow has the resolve at 10. Let me tell you something right now. A 10-year-old Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know where you're going with this. I, I would have been dead at the end of that bridge. Oh, I, I, I could tell you that right now. I mean, the fact that this kid puts up with this much physical, mental, and emotional, and, and practically sexual abuse to survive is, in, is insane to me. I totally agree. The first time I read it, I kind of went on and I was just going on the journey. So much is happening. I really internalized Jake's journey with Gasher more the second time around. Absolutely. And it is terrifying. And where the old people of River Crossing, no less decrepit, no less ancient, uh, no less felt the brunt effects of this horrible world, showed Jake such compassion and intelligence and wisdom and guidance. We have the total opposite in old man Gasher. Yeah, complete. And Gasher, who is willing to threaten sexual violence on Jake while he is physically assaulting him. And there are points in Jake's journey where he's just like, oh, I probably just want to die. Well, you know what? I'm going to hold on to one thought. I might be able to kill him before I die. So the beginnings of the gunslinger, right? Like the beginnings of that, of Roland in his brain, that seed being planted, it's now starting to grow. I mean, I... I and as things progress, he, st- he realizes that Roland is more behind him than he thought, and he starts to get some help. And I think it's significant that when Jake's story culminates in there, that, you know, he doesn't just open up the door, that he tries to kill the TikTok man himself. Right. Where we see Jake 
I mean, and how could he not, after that abuse, be different? And he he has now realized how cruel this world is. And you're right, it's uncomfortable, it's awful, but it drives home the point that there are plenty of people who need saving in this world, and Roland and his content are the ones to do it. Absolutely. And, you know, this is the first time where I look at Jake as an adult and, and less of a child. I mean, when he, that path of survival that he takes to end up in a room with the TikTok man, I mean, basically as a sacrifice. I mean, this kid was about to get put in, you know, into sexual slavery. I mean, it was it, Jake's life, and for all intents and purposes, it's about to fucking suck. It's about to be real bad. It wasn't that good to begin it with, It was too. not that good to begin with. Yeah. But it was about to, you know, become exponentially worse. Yeah. And I don't know, I, I continue to focus on like his resolve just to be able to focus on like, yes, Roland is in my corner. I believe in Roland. He's going to come and save me. And then fucking always shows up. Ugh. Ugh. Jake's pet shows up and actually is the one that saves Jake, that causes the ruckus with the TikTok man, that comes in and it, like his resolve. You know, we have, we have this whole piece about, you know, Gasher getting... Uh, Jake to the TikTok man. And then parallel to that, we have Roland following them with Oi, you know, tracking them through this. And, and, and the entire time, this stone cold fucking killer and this, the love and devotion of this animal to its owner to, to, to snuff him out. I mean, that kills me. You know, I, I only adopted Lola. I only adopted our dog. What? Not even a year ago. It's the first dog I've ever had. Right. But now any time that I see a connection between a, a pet and its owner. I mean, Daenerys and her dragons, blah, blah, blah. We could go on forever and ever. Got Harry Potter and Hedwig. Ugh. We could go on forever and ever. That affects me more now. And so that journey of, oh, I mean, I, I remember actively sitting, you know, in the bottom of Liberty Place, just, just cheering on, oh, yes, we're going to find him. We're going to do this, boy. We're going to get there. We're going to get him. And, you know, when... When Oi puts himself into danger, I find myself, I tense up. I mean, and then ultimately Roland comes in, kills everybody in the room. <laughs> well, one thing, one thing I want to point out, a reflection of Jake's as he's running through the trash heap and gets deeper and deeper into the maze that is the trash that is the territory of the greys of Lud. And Jake is looking up and he sees, quote, the strips of clouds, the strips of clouds and sky overhead narrow to a band and the band to a ribbon. And then the ribbon became a thread. They were in the gloomy netherworld, screaming like rats through a, a hantic maze of trash in midworld. What if it all comes down on us? Jake wondered about his current state of aching and exhaustion. This possibility did not threaten him much. If the roof fell in, he would at least be able to rest. And what I like about this quote is that juxtaposed from the wilderness that they've been in, Jake's imagery of civilization literally slowly collapsing into a tunnel. And then what happens if civilization itself falls on him? At least he'll be able to rest. The idea that there is some element, a corrosive element of civilization itself that I think is happening in the second half of this book as a critique of what I would imagine to be, you know, 
superficial urbanization and uh, it, you know and i think there is something to happen happening in this book of of stephen king critiquing city life the kid's 10 years old and he thinks if civilization crumbles down on me at least i'll get to rest that's that's beautiful it's dark it's fucking dark as shit but <laughs> yeah but it's but it's beautiful it I mean, is th- it that's a really beautiful image and we have to push through the own repulsiveness of Gasher and what he does to Jake, to in my view, to really understand the, the metaphor that's happening here. And as terrible as it is, and you're right, and as uncomfortable as it is, because it is, mm-hmm. I think there is a clear metaphor coming through in Jake's, um, you know, Jake's foray into the netherworld of Lud. And then in, and that ultimately goes to the sewers with false light, and that is the kingdom of the greys. Uh, before we move on, I just want to dial back when Roland, Susanna, Eddie, Jake, and Oi first encounter Gasher. This one thing I want to point out, the thing that does save the whole quartet in this is Roland's ability to be a diplomat and his ability to negotiate with Gasher. Mm-hmm. He's able to size up what type of man Gasher is quickly, which is a diseased man who does not have a long time to live, was a very powerful weapon in his hand, a grenade, and that Gasher, He's a cornered animal. Yeah, and that Gasher has the upper hand and that they have no choice and his only play in this terrible scenario is to temporarily give Jake to Gasher in the hopes that he and Oi can then hunt down and find Gasher and split. This newly formed content must fracture. And Jake just goes along with it. Jake's like, you're right, because you're going to come and get me because you promised you promised you wouldn't let me go again. And I love that Jake sticks to that. The thing that he does now is he sticks to his guns. You know, the Jake in the, in, in the drawing of the three that we see, as opposed to the Jake now, is, is much different. Much, much different. I mean, it, it's crazy how much resolve this kid has, has gained in a really short amount of time. I mean, to put his body up for practical sacrifice... Knowing that Roland will not rest until he gets him back. Knowing that dad's going to come and save me. Totally, I mean, totally agree. And you know, the thing that King does really, really well is that he makes you believe sometimes that, that might not actually happen. Oh, yeah. There's pieces of this where I'm like, dude, how the fuck is Roland going to, how's he going to find, like, how's he going to find him? They're, they're, they're like a mile and a half ahead, two miles ahead. You know, it's like by the, I assumed that they're just going to kill Jake. I mean, it's the, you know, by the time Roland gets there, but no, my VIP for this book, Oi, comes through. There's just something about him. You know, the first time around, I, I didn't have a dog. I had cats. I have a different relationship with them. I have, you know, and I, I talk about this because there is something about this book and, and the connection between Oi and Jake and, and Oi and Roland specifically. You know, teaming up as, as as becoming pieces of that quartet. There's something about an animal's devotion, pure and utter devotion to the person it knows is going to save and protect them that I thought was really beautiful. I mean, Oi, Roland was convinced that Oi was going to die. That this was it. He was going to sacrifice himself for Jake. And yet he does and comes out of it Barely fucking scratched. It's one of the few times where Roland is able to put a piece on the metaphoric chessboard as a sacrifice 
and they don't end up dead. And it's very interesting that it's Oi. Mm -hmm. And I want to pay attention to that moving forward. Yeah. Because we cannot talk about future books, but I want, that's a really interesting point that you bring up that he puts that piece on a chessboard as a sacrifice and Ka chooses otherwise. Yep. And I think that is absolutely solidifying the Ka-Tet there. And, and why, I agree. But why, we don't have to answer this now, but why Oi? Of, all, of every character, why Oi? And that's something I think we should just, we should marinate. Okay. Yeah. Let's marinate on that. Yeah. I'd like to pivot to the other part of Lud, if you would permit yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, we have the, the second storyline, sure. Which where Eddie and Susanna finally get to the point where they see the speakers, the pubes hear the drums, and they're so excited to kill one of their own. Every time they hear the drums, they do another sacrifice, presumably to the deified Blaine the Mono. One thing that we haven't done, we've mentioned the pubes and the greys, but I think we need to... So basically the pubes are, are kind of these mutated underlings who, who, who are, are basically animals at this point. I mean, they're human sacrifice. They're killing each other all the time. They're, they're fighting for basic necessity. Whereas the greys are a little bit more, you know, they're intellectually stimulated. They have a, a basic structure of society in a way, even though they have a totalitarian basically, but, and they're constantly at war with one another. And we get the sense that the pubes means for puberty, the greys mean for old, yeah. and that we, we hear this in the river crossing, that the young and the old were involved in a civil war for the control of Lud when the world moved on, and it doesn't really matter who's young or old anymore, and that war has never ended. I think clearly the greys have fared better. They have their subterranean dwelling that has things like water and food and sanitation, the pubes definitely have the worst end to the of this. They every time they hear the drums playing, which we learn is a ZZ Top song. Right, right. Another evidence of the cross worlding here. I think it's Velcro Fly. Yes, and we learn that that is just the drums that they hear. That they think it's time that their gods have summoned them to sacrifice another one of them, and this is one of the I think my favorite Susanna moment of the book is when she sees the speakers, she instantly and intuitively understands what this world is, who the pubes are, and what they're doing. And that she reminisces about a theological discussion she had with her father about God, which her father tells her that God had abandoned humanity after humanity killed his son. And in it, she thinks, and I will quote, But she knew she'd come around to her father's cynical point of view on the subject of God and the chance he might or might not have with the the chances he might or might not have with the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. The people have been looking for a reason to slaughter each other, and that was all. And the drums had been good as any reason. She found herself thinking of the hive they'd found, the misshapen hive of white bees whose honey had poison who would have poisoned them if they'd been foolish enough to eat or drink of it. Here on this side of the send was another hive, more mutated white bees whose sting would be no less deadly for their confusion, loss, and perplexity. How many more will have to die before the tape finally breaks? I love this moment. I love this moment because here we are finding the culmination of, I think, King's meditation about civilization, in particular, 
the juxtaposition of the uh, more rural versus the urban. Susanna is undoubtedly the most tortured psychologically of all the characters here. Now, they all have their demons and they all have their problems, but Susanna's psychic wounds were so deep they fragmented into multiple others that she has to reconcile. She has a very deep psychological disorder. And in this, she finally succumbs to the full cynicism. How long until the tape finally breaks? The pubes needed a reason for slaughter. The god drums were as good as any reason, and hence they commence with the slaughter. And if it wasn't for that, it'd be something else. And A, she is largely proved correct in this. Like, she's largely proved that her intuition is right. That is what they're doing, and it is absolutely abhorrent. So do you think that the reason that Susanna can pick up on this, you know, that it is inevitable that... that he- these humans will continue to do horrible things to each other no matter what. If it's not one thing, it's another. Do you think that comes from the fact that she was a woman of color growing up in the 50s in America and experienced a heavy, heavy bout of racism and hatred in her life? More so than than Eddie and Jake could ever imagine. I think her character understands systems of oppression better than all of them. Yeah, definitely. Because she's felt the brunt of them. So I think you're absolutely correct about that. I do think it's because of her fractured, tortured life that she's had psychologically in her disorder, coupled with the fact that she has had to be a minority in the Jim Crow era of America that I think gives her this cynical worldview that she's able to really see what these drums are all about. And I think it's good that we we have a piece of Susanna that's not just having to fight her demons or, or, or face her demons to save the men in the group, although that does happen again. Detta Walker has to come back. So, like, yet again, I mean, I don't, I don't want to spend my time shitting on King, but, like... He gets one step forward and two steps backward when it comes to Susanna for me because he does give her these beautiful moments and and cynical moments of realization. But then we get, you know, 50 pages later, she's forced once again to face this demon. Now, it's not the same. It's changed. Right. But she has to once again constantly fight through this strife. And one thing I'd say, and I don't want to rebut. No, please, please rebut. The one thing I'd say, it's worth at least considering that compared to when Odetta is called on to take control of her body with the Oracle, this is a very controlled, this is where she's just like, I'm going to, to control. I'm going to like access this part of my, my personality and I'm going to use the part of that personality that I need and what I don't need, I'm going to push away. And King even describes it that there is a blending moment. Right. Where, you know, Detta starts to fade and Susanna starts to rise. And Susanna takes takes control of it. And, and I agree. I guess it would have just been nice for it to have been something else. Other than, you know, a manifestation of her past demons. And like I said, I don't, I don't mean to shit on King about it. It's just, I, I, reading the book, I do feel that it's the one step forward, two steps backward thing. But... You're not wrong. But in relation to what she does in the moment that we're talking about, having this realization with the drums and seeing that cynical point of view is amazing. But I also think 
there is an aspect of it to say Susanna will never fully defeat that other. It's a permanent part of her. Yeah, fair enough. And she has learned how to master and control it. And in the two times that she's done in this book, she's better at it the second time yep. than the first time. Absolutely. I mean, she's, she's pretty much masterful at it now. I mean, I mean, she's got it down. Absolutely. So I think he is saying that this part of her is permanently part of her and it can't fully be reconciled no matter what. Sure. So the best that she can do is call on it when she needs it and then push it away when she doesn't. And in that way, I do think there is real progress for the character, Susanna. Though I agree, she gets a lot of the short end of the stick, in particular in the first half of the book. Um, in this part, I at least appreciated these two moments well, that I thought she, were real good character moments. She is also the most perceptive of all of them. I mean, there's no question about that. And other than Roland, the most lethal. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At, yeah, at the end of the day. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. All right, we are really pushing up on time. Okay. Can I make an executive decision? Sure. Can we get to Blaine so that we can end this? Yeah, I think that's the, I think that's the logical thing to do anyway. And, and we can maybe cycle back. If you guys want to hear us to really dissect the TikTok scenes, we'll do it. Sure. But let's talk about I think Blaine. Blaine's more important anyway. Absolutely. So they eventually end up in Blaine, and we get a call back to what they had discussed on the way to Blaine, which is that... Riddling is a very important and powerful ritual. It's that, sacred. That riddle, riddles were sacred to Gilead, and this dysfunctional, multi-personality, failing machine called Blaine, whose job it was to run the city of Lud, uh, believes that riddles and riddling is the way that he can entertain himself. We come to learn that Blaine wants to commit suicide yep. with the rest of them, and all he wants is good riddles along the way. And in this, we see, I think, the emotional climax, which yeah. is, you described it earlier as Roland being fucking Oh, Roland. yeah. Oh, yeah. We get this moment. I mean, you know, up until this point, when, when Blaine takes off, we're going like 800 miles an hour on this on this bullet train and as we're leaving Ludd, he gasses the entire fucking city. I mean, he he's basically causing genocide. He he burns the entire city down that he has sworn to protect and lead for his entire existence. And now we're we're going to Topeka of all places as the last stop on you know, we're following the path of the beam. So Blaine is very much aware of the dark tower, very much aware of the path of the beam. Uh, understands the lore of the gunslinger and, and really only entertains the quartet because they're gunslingers, mostly because of Roland. I mean, we talked earlier about the fucking ice sculpture of Roland that's in Blaine. I mean, Blaine knew that they were coming and, and, and had this idea all along. And we learned from Roland that in his youth, once a year, you know, the only time that the common people of Gilead were allowed in... It, it's the God, is it the Hall of Kings? I forget what the I forget what the hall is called. But, but oh God, I'm blanking on I it. I know, I know. Oh, this is terrible. I don't have the book in front of me. But anyway, they, they go into this hall, and it's the only time that the that the common people of Gilead are able to be in the company of gunslingers, basically. And they have fucking riddle challenges. You know, where they where they challenge each other, you know, to this mental battle of wits. And Roland says, most of the time, Court left with the prize. Court was the riddle master. 
which is which is which is so f- fucking interesting to me knowing how shitty he was and how how curt he was and how blunt and abusive he was that he reveled in speech and language and understood that that this way of communication was of a higher form in Gilead and now and now they're on this train and they have to literally save themselves from a psychotic fucking computer by telling riddles yeah it's i mean i don't know about you the first time i read it i was like this is laughable what the fuck is this the second time i was like whoa yeah this it's is real. so significant so I, a few things I think with the theme of the, the my view the theme of the second half of the book is that all of the tools of civilization the highest forms of civilization can go awry and we have the most sophisticated piece of technology a sentient train AI that runs the city that's gone mad and because of that the city itself has gone mad mm-hmm. we have Blaine willing to gas the whole city as you said and he takes them through. I think the literal wastelands where we see what is outside on the other side of Lud. There's fucking volcanoes, monsters, sulfur pits, monsters, like things that look like pterodactyls, but they're all mutated and fucked up. Yet yeah, those chapters are crazy. They're crazy. And proved a few things. One, Jake was right. They had to take Blaine. There's no other way that they could get across this without Blaine the mono. Oh, that would have been certain death. Absolutely. There's no way they could have crossed it. No fucking way. Yeah, without a doubt. (laughs) Yeah. No one could have crossed it because it is that is the literal wasteland. But I want to pull out a quote that Eddie had in his thoughts. And I want to, as we at the end of this cliffhanger, where they have to face off with Blaine the Mono, um, there's a question that I want to pose here. Actually, I'll I'll pose the question before I read the quote. Where is the actual wasteland? Because this book is called The Wasteland. And is it just this piece that Blaine the Mono is crossing at the end? No, I think it's symbolic of this piece of the journey to the Dark Tower. I I mean, you have to go through the dark to get to the light. And I think up until this point, it was about gathering the quartet and not much about the journey. And that the first leg of the journey is fucking horrible. It's probably not going to get much easier from here. Um, so I think it's more symbolic than anything. I mean, it's a literal wasteland. I mean, Lud is a wasteland, too, in its own right. But then, you know, when we get, you know, 700 miles out of Lud, and it's, it's awful. Yes. It's real bad. It is a literal wasteland. A literal fucking Without wasteland. a doubt. You have and to you be wonder, a monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the one question I have, I, I wonder what it was like in, in Blaine's heyday. Or if this is how it's always been. If right. this is how this works. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know. But I think it's more m- metaphoric than it is a literal wasteland. I mean, we have that piece. But I think it's just the, this piece of the journey is, is the wasteland. I mean, they've been the most abused. Each character has, has been through some pretty monumental shifts in this book. Right. Well, when Eddie wakes up Blaine and, well, he's first talking to little Blaine and after Susanna has her realization of the cynicism of the pubes and that God has abandoned them, Eddie thinks it was all a piece, he realized now, part of some awful hole, a tattered web with the dark tower at its center in comprehens- as a comprehensible stone spider. 
all of Midworld had become one vast haunted ma- mansion in the strange weather days. All Midworld had become the drawers. All of Midworld had become a wasteland, haunting and haunted. Mm-hmm. And I think, to me, that's the that's the like thesis statement of that. When the world moves on, it's all the wasteland. Sure. Sure. And I think that's where they have left off. I mean, when time abandons the land, it becomes a waste. Traveling through the wastes with a psychotic... See, we could read Blaine a few ways. We could read him as the literal piece of technology. In many ways, that's a great way to read him. And I think the metaphor of technology turning on itself once the world has moved on. I think that's the way I read it the first time. The other way is that he's a ghost. Hmm. And a ghost of a civilization that has failed. And he is that ghost in that machine. And he is still haunting the wasteland. And that in order to cross the bridge to get to the Holy Grail, you have to answer the ghost's riddles. Hmm. Otherwise, the ghost will throw you off the bridge. Yeah. I think that's another way that you can read Blaine, which is very much part of a very Arthurian crossing the wasteland, sure, definitely. answering the riddles of the ghost, and they're just too hard and too complex. I mean, it, remi- it reminds me of when we play Shadows of Camelot, of like the different things you have to gain, like the different quests, you know, when you like gain Lancelot's armor and you have to get Excalibur. A lot of these a lot of these mini quests that they're going on to get to the grail, which is the ultimate end. I mean, it's the same thing in the game, right? Right. Like all of these quests are them just gathering the different pieces, the different relics that they need to finally conquer the tower. And so getting past Blaine is one of them. Now where we end up, uh, we end up, we're about to get, in, we're about to get into a riddle battle. Yes, we are. <laughs> it ends. For lack of a better term. I mean, like we're, we're, we're about to sling riddles with the psychotic ghost. I mean, and, that's insane. And I love that we get a long explanation of what riddling was for Roland yeah. in Gilead and that it was about a big ritual where they would have riddle-offs and that the winner would get the goose. You know what? I thought that was fantastic. What a, Just thinking about this real quick, and, and we can keep this short, but what about that? Like, What does that symbolize? I mean, in a world of, of killers, of knights, really deadly knights, like what? What about riddles? What is it about riddles exactly? The power of words. And I really think it's about the power of words. Sure. And I think that is a theme that we see in this book. We've seen it in the previous. We've seen it in the first. And I think we'll see that going on, that words have an innate power to King. And I think they have an innate power in this multiverse that he is painting. And because that you could use words to uh, to create puzzles, you can use words to create songs, you can use words to create propaganda to support things like, you know, killing people when you hear the god drums or mm-hmm. forming the Third Reich to take over Europe. Right, right, right. I think all of these things are linked through the power of words, and I think the the riddle game is a representation of how much words matter, mm-hmm. and in a world where paper is more valuable than precious metal. And what you do with paper, you put words on it. Right. I think it's about the power of language and the power of words. Yeah, I think that's great. It's right on. All right. So before we wrap up, what, you got anything else here? No, I'm just, <laughs> I am so excited to read the next book. The next book is theoretically Wizard and Glass. It's the fourth book. The first time I read it, it was my favorite one. So 
I, I, the thing I'm trying to do, I'm trying to commit to is not have a bias and read it with fresh eyes, but I'd be lying <laughs> if I, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't excited. I'm super excited. All right, guys. So we need to know what you think. Tell us what we got right. Tell mm-hmm. us what we got wrong. Tell us what you want to see next. Um, we are probably not going to be able to do all of Wizard of Glass in one month. We're probably going to be breaking that up. Um, yeah, so, that's even bigger than this one. And yes. There's a lot. There's it's, a lot about Roland. It's a big, big book. I'm really excited to dig into it. Um, I, one last final thought is that if you just Google most popular favorite best book of the Dark Tower, many people say Wastelands is it. Yeah. And as we go along, Wheel of Ka fans, I'm asking a favor. When we get to your favorite book, tell us that we're there. Tell mm. us what you thought of how we did. And tell us why it's your favorite book. For most of you, it may be The Wastelands. I fucking loved this book. I'm excited to do more. And uh, until next time, guys, long days and pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant nights.